greatest number that you'll ever do Welcome to the Chopping Wood Inside podcast, the Twin Peaks podcast for conspiracy theorists and aficionados. I'm your host, Murphy. Uh, Actually, this is Tom. Murphy was unable to record tonight. Uh, Murphy and I will be back on Wednesday night to record a podcast on part 14. And we're going to dive way, 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 way deep into all the madness and beauty that we saw in this particular episode. But for now, I'm going to give you my hot take on what transpired tonight and right off the bat when i saw the rancho rosa logo which appears before every episode each one has a different color scheme to it and i noticed that it was black and white tonight and the last time we got a black and white um, rancho rosa logo was before part eight so my expectations were already very high at seeing that they rose even higher and uh, did not disappoint overall my impressions of this particular episode, even though there weren't a lot of scenes and we didn't see anything with uh, Las Vegas or Mr. C. In fact, Kyle McLaughlin, you know, Agent Cooper and Mr. C did not appear um, in this show, in this um, particular episode at all, except for one brief scene um, with both of their images. And I'll get into that particular um, scene a little bit later. But uh, there weren't, like I said, very many, many scenes. We didn't get a lot in Twin Peaks. But what we got was so, so compelling um, in so many ways. I mean, there were um, especially a character um, that was reintroduced in this particular episode, which I never suspected we would see again. And and her uh, reappearance and what it means to the actual um, story and uh, um, how it's going to you know unfold and ultimately conclude is so fascinating. There's so many things to discuss, um, so many great little touches um, in this particular episode. I really, really loved it. I love all of the Twin Peaks episodes. Um, they're like children. You don't like to say you love one more than the other, um, but um, overall, this really was a terrific episode. So I'm going to jump right in and uh, go through the scenes. I'm not going to go too deep into you know crazy rabbit holes i'm going to save that for when murphy and i do our proper um show um a few days later but um, i will talk about a few things that uh, that i caught and uh speculate on what they might mean but we start off in buckhorn we're still in buckhorn the fbi is still in buckhorn um seemingly everything's wrapped up i mean uh, they visited the zone uh, cole albert tammy um you know major briggs's body is still on ice um, they've got that information. There's not really much to do, I think, left in Buckhorn. But uh, I'm okay as long as we kind of move forward. And But actually, the first scene that we get in this episode is Cole making a phone call. And he's actually returning a call from Sheriff Truman, who contacted the FBI about some very important information that he thought Cole would want to know. So what we get is Cole dialing the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department and uh, Lucy picks up and Cole immediately uh, remembers her. And uh, it's just a great little touch. I love it. I mean, Lucy is a very memorable character in her, in her own right. And uh, I think she remembers Cole as well, having to uh, you know, pull the phone away from her head. 
uh, as he's talking. But uh, she mentions that uh, she'll transfer him to Sheriff Truman, and uh, she does. But Cole thinks he's talking to Harry. So Truman has to, Frank has to, you know, let him know, give him the bad news that that uh, Harry's under doctor's care and uh, um, Cole's sympathetic um, and asks Truman, you know, what uh, what the what the situation is. And Truman tells him that he wanted to, you know, let him know what Deputy Chief Hawk discovered um, with Laura, pa- uh, Laura Palmer's uh, missing diary pages and the reference to two Coopers. But he doesn't mention anything related to Major Briggs or Jack Rabbit's Palace. But um, that's neither here nor there. I think uh, the FBI will eventually get to uh, Twin Peaks and uh, um, realize that you know this connection, whatever was discovered, which I'll get into a little bit, and how it, it, it fits into what they're investigating. What they're investigating. But uh, that that call ends, and uh, we go directly to um, another room at the same hotel where Albert is telling Tammy about the first Blue Rose case. Now, the first thing I noticed in this scene was uh, the equipment uh, that was in the room. So obviously they're working on some different stuff here as to what it is. I have no idea. But um, Albert goes into a story that takes place in 1975 in Olympia, Washington, where two field agents who we find out are Cole and Jeffries. And uh, we know from the secret history of Twin Peaks, Mark Frost's great book, uh, that Cole and Jeffries um, had actually uh, visited Twin Peaks in the 80s, I think, uh, related to uh, Listening Post Alpha, when that was actually being, um, you know, uh, I would say created, but um, when it was, you know, going up, basically, there was some issue with Dougie Milford, who was a character in, uh, in the secret, major character in the secret history of Twin Peaks, and his brother, Mayor Dwayne Milford. They had some conflict, and the FBI was called in. Um, to kind of ease uh, Mayor, uh, Mayor Milford's um, fears about what may be going on. But, uh, but Jeffries and Cole, so they've been working together um, for years on any number of, of cases. But what, what Albert is telling Tammy is about this case, which is in Olympia, uh, Washington. And uh, Cole and Jeffries arrive at this motel. We don't know what set them off to this particular location, but they hear a gunshot and they break into the room and they see two women. And there's one woman on the ground who's uh, bleeding from a gunshot wound to the abdomen. And I immediately thought of Agent Cooper in the original series. I mean, he was shot in the abdomen. He was actually also knifed by uh, Wyndham Earl in Pittsburgh in the abdomen as well. But this woman is dying, and they approach her, Cole and Jeffries, and she has one final message, or you know, she says one thing before she dies, and that's, I am like the blue rose. And then she smiles. And disappears. Now, when she, when I heard that, I immediately thought, and probably because it was the last episode, when Ray put the ring on right before Mr. C, Mr. C killed him, or actually when Mr. C killed him, um, the ring disappeared. Now, Ray, I don't think his body disappeared at the farm at that particular moment, but his body did wind up at the in the Black Lodge. So what I thought was this: this Lois Duffy, I believe, was the woman's name that was she wearing the owl cave ring um, or was she a doppelganger? Because the other person in the room is also Lois Duffy. And Albert's very clear to Tammy that Lois Duffy did not have a twin sister. So what we're seeing here are two, you know, women, you know, the same woman, Lois Duffy. 
and I, the insinuation is, you know, one of them is a doppelganger because Laura, uh, the Lois Duffy with a gun says that she didn't kill anyone. So what happens ultimately is that Lois Duffy is tried and convicted and winds up hanging herself in jail. But the first Blue Rose case, which, you know, we were starting to find out, you know, some information about, you know, what that actually means. We just got a very cryptic mention or several mentions in Firewalk With Me. It wasn't, a, a Blue Rose was never mentioned in the original series. But the insinuation for me was always that it was related to supernatural events. But I think maybe more specifically, uh, possibly, you know, owl, the Owl Cave Ring and, um, and uh, doppelgangers. So right after that, Albert asks Tammy what her impressions are and her first thoughts, I think one of the first words, she, she used the word conjuring, which made me think of manufacturing, the manufacturing of Dougie. But she also mentions this word, tulpa. I think that's how she pronounced it. It's, I think it's T-U-L-P-A. And I wasn't familiar with it. I actually had to look it up. And it's apparently uh, uh, from Tibetan mythology and uh, it's a uh, thought form uh, or a being created from the collective thoughts of separate individuals. And it's described as extra bodies that were created from one person's mind in order to travel to spiritual realms. So that opens up like a whole Pandora's box. What does that mean? Is it related to Mr. C manufacturing Dougie? Is it related to um, Cooper, uh, presumably being the dreamer, which I'm just about to talk about? Um, We'll dive into that more um, on Wednesday night. But uh, right after that, uh, Cole enters the room. And the first thing I think he says to Albert is like, I found it or I've got something. And he hands him um, what looked like, I don't know, like a little notepad or a wallet. I tried to really, you know, kind of zoom in on it. I really couldn't decipher what it was. And I don't know if it has any bearing on anything. But uh, um, he, <laughs> there's a little like non sequitur with a window washer. Uh, we just see the silhouette of the window washer. And the noise of the squeegee on the window is causing Cole's uh, hearing aids to go just completely, you know, bonkers. And he's having a hard time lowering the, the volume. And it was just a, a like I said, a non sequitur, a great little touch, um, but kind of a transition between, you know, Albert's story and what we're about to um, find out because Diane is coming. And when Diane enters the room, um, she sits down, lights a smoke. Cole says it's coffee time. And I believe the first thing she says is uh, Deputy Diane, you know, reporting. And uh, just her line reading and, and just the gravitas um, that she brings to this character. Laura Dern is a fantastic actor, actress, and uh, just you know, she, she can, you know, uh, convey so much with, you know, not even saying anything, with just facial expressions. And she was just fantastic. She's been fantastic throughout, but this really was a little great scene. And the real big revelation is that Albert, um, well, actually, the first thing is that Cole, wants to know about that night. Now, that night's in reference to um, Mr. C and Diane when uh, she went to go see him at the Yankton uh, Federal Prison. Um, you know, there's this great mystery of what happened that night, something that Diane will never forget, nor will Mr. C. And I posited it might have something to do with the manufacturing of Dougie. Now, we still don't know that, but what Cole is inquiring about is if Mr. C made any mention of Major Garland Briggs. Now, Diane doesn't want to, first, first of all, she doesn't want to talk about that night, but Cole persists and she does give him an answer. Yes, he did mention Major Briggs. So 
there's so much with this as well. And uh, but my first thought is that um, Mr. C, I think, suspected or might have you know known or it had been confirmed, did not die in that fire at Listening Post Alpha after he visited him right after the the, the events of the, the original series and was on to Mr. or Major Briggs or was searching for him. And it could very well be at some point since Diane was so familiar with the cases that Cooper worked on that she would know about Twin Peaks and Major Briggs that um, he would you know have her investigate that particular angle. Now, we know Diane has been texting with someone. We assume it might be Mr. C. I think it might be an intermediary. And I don't think that Diane is, you know, completely on, you know, or opposed to the Blue Rose Task Force and what they're trying to to, to find out related to, to Mr. C and all these other events. But uh, her admitting it, she didn't have to admit that. You know, so that shows that she, st- she cares. I mean, I really, I really truly believe that this is all for Coop- about Cooper for her. And seeing Mr. Mr. C when she did really kind of just like, you know, shook her to the core because I don't think she had seen him for many years. I mean, he is probably sending her messages, but when she did see him, it was not the Cooper that she knew. But, uh, and then she's kind of caught in the middle, but uh, uh, she's excused after she, oh no, excuse me. There's one more big, huge revelation is that right after this, Albert produces the ring that was, you know, found in Major Briggs in his stomach. Now, why he chose to do this at this particular point and why he thinks it's relevant uh, to Diane, other than the fact that it was found within Major Briggs, is a little curious. But he reads the inscription, which we know to be um, to Dougie with love, Janie E. And as soon as she hears that, you know, she she knows Janie E is Diane's half-sister. And she knows that she is married to a Douglas Jones who goes by a Dougie. Now, and she knows that they live in Las Vegas. Now, when they ask her when, you know, the last time she saw Janie E, she says that they're estranged. But there's more to this than what she's letting on. But it also opens up a whole other, you know, thread of, you know, Janie E. You know, what, you know, her true intentions are or what her relation to maybe Diane and maybe the manufacturing of Dougie or Mr. C., that, that for me, obviously the revelation that Diane is and Janie E are related, they're sisters. But thinking more about Naomi Watts' character, Janie E, and how it all fits into it is just, there's so much to chew on with that, which we will, of course. But uh, Diane is then excused, and then um, Cole <laughs> remembers another Monica Bellucci dream. And it's, I, I thought it was great, the reactions of, of Tammy, both Tammy and Albert. Tammy just... <laughs> Seems like amused, like she's heard several of these Monica Bellucci jokes, or jokes, excuse me, dreams. And uh, and Albert, he's like, I'm sure he's heard this even more than maybe Tammy, and he really doesn't have much of an expression. But Cole goes into detail about his dream that he's remembering. And in the dream, um, he's in Paris, and he was asked to meet Monica Bellucci at a sidewalk cafe. Now, Monica Bellucci shows up with a couple of friends, and it's it's a very friendly environment. And they order coffee. And then Monica Bellucci says the line from the Upanishads that Murphy and I discussed in our uh, previous podcast, which Lynch was using when he was discussing Inland Empire before um, uh, the screenings at various locations back when that film was released. But it is, we are like the dreamer and we live inside the dream. 
Now, we live, live inside the dream is very uh, very similar to what Philip Jeffries said in Firewalk With Me. We live inside the dream. But she continues um, on and she says, but who is the dreamer? Now, Cole, right before that, actually said that, you know, meeting her at uh, the, the cafe in Paris, Cooper was also there. And when he mentions Cooper, it cuts to a building and a window and a room. Now, I didn't see anything inside the room, but then Cooper appears and he, outside the room. It's just like a superimposition, and it's pretty much just his like torso, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, the lower half of his face. And seeing that image of the lower half of his face, for me, reminded me of the original theatrical poster of Lost Highway, where the, uh, the, the Fred Madison and Renee Madison characters played by Bill Pullman and, and, and Patty Arquette. It's the lower half of their faces, one on top of each other. Now, that film is about multiple identities and uh, personalities and, and what have you. But that was just a little, you know, curious touch. And I think I mentioned that Mr. C and Cooper were just seen in that one scene in, you know, uh, during the Jack Rabbit's Palace. But obviously, this was another scene uh, of Cooper, albeit briefly. But right after this, when um, Monica Bellucci says, we are like the dreamer, I think what Cole does is he uh, suspects that she's looking past him at something and he gets this uneasy feeling and he turns around and when he turns around he sees an image of himself back like 25 years later at the Philadelphia office in a scene from Fire Walk With Me. Now he tells the story of Cooper having a dream, being worried about a dream he had that that night. Now, he's telling this all to Albert and Tammy. And it was on February 16th at 10, 10 a.m. And what happened was is that right after Cole R. Cooper left Cole's office in Firewalk With Me, he went to look at himself on the security monitor and then went, uh, our security camera, and then went, went to the room where the monitors were and looked at himself or looked at that hallway, that spot where he was. Well, when Philip Jeffries wind up emerging from the elevator, Cooper's image was still in the hallway. Now, I always thought the dream that he was telling Cole was related to that, that he was kind of reenacting, like he had kind of had a premonition that maybe Jeffries would appear or there might be something um, uh, related to like his double image. Well, very much so, obviously. And uh, so what, what Cole does is that he says that he's remembering this, this, this moment from 25 years you know, earlier, 25 years plus, I think, another year or two, that Philip Jeffries, when he entered the room, he raised his arm and he pointed at Cooper and he says, who do you think this is there? Now, it was great to see David Bowie. Now, obviously, I think everyone who's seen Fire Walk with me have seen that same scene, other than the fact that it isn't the same scene from Fire Walk with me. It's actually from The Missing Pieces, like a, a different take. But we got a great, you know, we got Philip Jeffries. I mean, for the audience, the people who have not seen maybe Fire Walk with me might be a little confused putting like, you know, face to name. It is David Bowie. I hope we get another David Bowie cameo. I suspect that we won't, but it was still great. So what what Cole is doing, he's remembering this and he had forgotten about that moment, about Cooper's dream, about Jeffrey's pointing to Cooper, about there being two Coopers. And it's obviously related to what Truman told him. And Albert is actually remembering. I think he says, ah, "I'm starting to, I'm starting to remember that 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 day too." But Albert's uh, reaction is uh, maybe there's a little bit more to it. Cole seems more kind of spontaneous, more genuine. Albert, there might be something a little bit more to Albert's reaction. Like maybe he was he never really forgot that 
You know, someone was leaving messages. Mr. C was leaving messages to someone. Very well could have been Diane and Albert. So we have this great scene and it's wrapped up and start off like a, a great 10 minute scene introducing part 14 and so many little interesting tidbits to go ahead and discuss and, and uh, to decode. But uh, we move forward now to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department and the conference room. And we have Andy in the conference room laying out some metal boxes, some lunch boxes. And then I think Bobby enters, Hawk's in there, and uh, Bobby's brought some lunch. And uh, I'm assuming we're going to Jack Rabbit's Palace, but I never uh, like uh, presumed that Andy would be going along with the gang to Jack Rabbit's Palace. But before we go there, Chad enters. And we have an immediate like sting operation where <laughs> Chad gets in. I think he's distracted by, by by Frank, and then Hawk pulls his gun, and then Frank actually you know cuffs him and orders Andy and, and, and Bobby to take him to his jail cell. Well, basically they had been on to him for months, and we had what we had seen with Chad was him involved in you know uh, the, maybe the Sparkle drug trade, and obviously involved with Little Dicky Horn. Now, all of this is building to something, and it's resolved in five seconds, and I have no problem with that because we have bigger fish to fry. But um, we got some kind of quick resolution with, with, uh, with Chad, and then we actually move on to Jack Rabbit's Palace. And indeed, Andy is going along with Truman, Bobby, and um, Hawk. And on their way to Jack Rabbit's Palace, Bobby's telling a little story about you know, uh, Major Briggs taking him there. And uh, he also mentions that the station is no longer there. They took it away. I, I, I suspected in the opening credits, there's the, you know, the overhead shot of the trees. And it looks like there was a building. It looks like there is a building uh, or some kind of structure. I posited that could have been Listening Post Alpha, but apparently that's incorrect um, since Listening Post Alpha no longer exists. But Bobby finds the location and it's, like a, like a stump, like a tree stump, like a dead tree, but it's 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 tall. It's like maybe ten or twelve feet um, uh, uh, high, and there was this these two little splinter wood splinters at the very top, which I thought maybe could be or connote rabbit ears, and maybe that's why Bobby named it so. Um, you know, Jack Rabbit's Palace so many years ago, but I'm probably reading too much into it. Um, so Bobby tells another story about um, that, that particular location with Major Briggs, just a, uh, a memory, and then says that, that his dad told him to never wander around there alone or at all uh, because of what we're about to see. Now, Hawk is ready to go. He's like points in the direction, 253 yards, and our true men, our good men, our bookhouse boys, well, we don't know if Andy's a bookhouse boy, but uh, he very well should be after what happens here. They head on over to Jack Rabbit's palace or uh, to the actual location where Major Briggs wanted them to go. Now, just a couple of you know uh, thoughts on this scene. Fantastic mood. I love the tree imagery. We didn't get a lot in Firewalk with me. We got our share, obviously, in the original series, and we've, we've had a few scenes here. But this really was a well-constructed scene, not only with what's transpiring, but with composition and mood. Um, so I really loved all the ambiance of the trees and them moving through the woods. And at some point, there was a little shudder. Like they were actually moving, um, you know, and I'm not saying in slow motion, but there was something like the, like time and space was affecting them. And what happened was, is that they eventually got to the place where uh, Major Briggs, you know, wanted them to go. And what they first see is smoke 
Now it wasn't black smoke from Hawk's living map, but it was just just you know gray smoke. And also, I noticed a sycamore tree. It looked like it was just one sycamore tree. Um, we know at Glastonbury Grove, there's a circle of twelve sycamore trees, and there was also something very similar at Glastonbury Grove, which um, uh, with the, the scorched engine oil, which was in this like pool surrounded by these like you know little s- uh, stones that were made into a circle. Well, there's something very similar here as well, but it's not black. It's more kind of yellow and gold. I thought immediately maybe Garmin Bozia, but I think this place is good. I think this very well might be the White Lodge. I think this is the place where Major Briggs either was taken to in the first series when him and Cooper were night fishing, or where he went, um, you know, after the fire to to you know somehow escape Mister C and to begin his time jump or to hibernate. I think this is the the, the location. Um, so what happens is is that when the smoke clears, they actually see a nude body on the ground, like in the fetal position. Now, Andy is the one who immediately goes over. Andy, the, the one of pure heart, the one of, of, of innocence. He goes over and he uh, goes to the to, to the person and, you know, he turns her, you know, to, to us, the audience, and we see it's it's Naido. I, I, that's how I'm going to pronounce her name. It's N-A-I-D-O, N-A-I-D, yes. So I'm just going to pronounce it Naido. Very well maybe incorrect. But from part three in the purple room when Cooper you know, when, when he came to the end of his journey from the Black Lodge, wound up in the Purple Room, and met this this person who actually was very helpful and prevented him from going out through the electrical portal, you know, labeled number 15, and took him out of the room and away from Mother. And she went and pulled that lever on that bell-like alarm that was also seen um, in the, uh, uh, the same domain as the giant and Senorito Dido. And uh, when she did... Some great force, some great energy, like like thrust her back, and she like you know fell off that 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 little box structure and into the void. And I thought to never be seen again. And Cooper's you know left helpless, looking after her. But she apparently traveled to Twin Peaks and found herself at this location. Now the curious thing about that whole scene in the Purple Rune is when Cooper returns. He meets the American girl, and before he goes through the electrical portal labeled number three, she holds up her watch, and the time is 2.53, and the date is Saturday, October 1st, the same date that we are seeing right now. So that is actually the same time. Now, we know from the events of the series that, well, we think at least some events are happening in late September obviously Hastings, we think everything is building up. So that scene was in the future. So when Cooper actually went out, he went out at on that particular day and went back in time. Or that watch was just somehow related to Naido and her journey. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. But it really is just such a great development to have her reappear at this location. Now, when Andy, Andy is like, you know, holding her, 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 her hand very tightly and she's struggling to speak to him just like she was struggling to speak to Cooper in part um, three, um, suddenly Frank says it's 2.53 and they look up and they see the vortex in the sky sucking up the leaves and the trees just like in Buckhorn at the zone and they're transfixed and Naido is still trying to talk to Andy, communicate somehow. And then all of a sudden, Andy rises 
And then they're all looking up together. This is long shot. And poof, Andy's gone. And we cut to the domain of the giant, the familiar setting that we saw in part eight and briefly in part one with, with him and Cooper. And Andy appears in a chair. And I believe it's the same chair that Cooper was sitting in part one. And then we see the giant slowly pass by and sit down in a chair and announce that I am the fireman. So now we have that mystery solved. The giant was listed in the credits as question marks. We've only known him as the giant because of his height, but apparently he's always been the fire, uh, the fireman. So he tells Andy, I am the fireman. And then he raises his hand like he did in part eight before the screen. And he watched the trailer of the events of the Trinity test and the woodsman and basically he does the same thing for Andy is what happens is is that when he raises his hand there's this object that appears in Andy's hands and there's this smoke that starts billowing in the room and then Andy looks up and there's like these two circular skylights and he looks up and he's blinking backwards which is also very curious because when Cooper was in the room he was moving forward and speaking normally but when Andy looks up He's in this this circular skylight or whatever. What I saw was the faint outline of the vortex and also two strange little objects. At first, I thought they were on my TV, like some kind of like smudge. But no, there were two. And I don't know. They I don't know what they are, but they certainly were put there. I don't know for what purpose, but there was something there. And then all of a sudden, some images start to appear to Andy. And I think they're clues. I mean, it, it because I mean, it, I think it's fairly obvious. What we see um, is a pattern, like a linear pattern, basically starting in 1945. And the first scene that we see, or which Andy's seen while he's looking up, and by the way, his expression is just priceless. It's absolutely fantastic. What he sees is um, the experiment from the glass box. And uh, at that particular point, I think it cuts directly to um, that same experiment from part eight when it spewed out that umbilical port, uh, umbilical cord with all of the eggs and the bob bubble. And then we see the convenience store and all the woodsmen, like, you know, uh, rushing about outside. And then a close-up of woodsman number one, the Abraham Lincoln woodsman. And when he actually said, got a light, got a light, I didn't think, I just, I, I just laughed. I thought it was, that was just great. Didn't need to do it. But I'm glad he did. It was just awesome. I never thought we would see him again because I thought part eight was self-contained, but apparently not. And it was good to see the woodsman again, woodsman number one. But then we continue. Now, the next shot we see is of these wires, the electrical wires. And what I thought of immediately was Firewalk With Me. There's a lot of callbacks to Firewalk With Me, at least for me, in this particular episode. The day after Laura discovered that Leland was Bob, and she's walking to school and she's just disoriented and confused and she's looking up and at the at the wires and they're all just running rapidly and Lynch is doing this this cross cutting and superimposition and feeding into to Laura's, you know, uh, feelings of unease and and being disturbed. And so I thought of that. So we're seeing that, but I think it's related to like the the, the, the spirits, the woodsmen um, or other lodge spirits the travel via electricity. So what I think that's happening here is that we're seeing some clues. We're, we're seeing a narrative unfold, albeit abstractly, followed by the electrical wires is a scene from the pilot, but was also from the original series, but was also seen in the actual first episode of this series, if you want to call that the pilot, of the Twin Peaks High School. 
and that girl running through the courtyard after you know we're we're discovering and and the students at the high school that Laura Palmer was killed. So that was very interesting. I never 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 would have expected that. But what follows is a shot of Laura Palmer, bookended by the angels that came to her at the end of Firewalk with Me. Now, in the background is the red drapes from the Black Lodge. And I think there was actually a shot of that right before Laura Palmer. But then it continues, and we see Naido now at, at, uh, at uh, the location where, where you know Andy, Truman, Hawk, and, and Briggs found her. So maybe now the, 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 the events that are unfolding before Andy have you know, become contemporary. What's following that is an image of Mr. C and Cooper as one, but then splitting, indicating the doppelganger. Now, Cooper has the pin, the FBI pin. Now, he's not wearing the FBI pin. He, he hasn't worn the FBI pin since he went out of the, the electrical portal number three in the purple room. But what I found most curious about the two shots of, of, of well, one of Cooper and Mr. C is, are the expressions. Now, Mr. C has his permanent scowl, but Cooper has a very similar expression. So um, that really was startling when, when, when I saw that. And uh, I'm going to really think about that and go into um, well, you know, uh, what you know, that may mean. There was some talk, Murphy and I talked a little about the merging of the two um, to become whole again. Here we are seeing them split, but maybe the, you know, the full circle is for them, to, for Cooper to be whole again is to actually merge with his doppelganger. But we next seen... The next, the, the next shot we see is of a phone line, of a blinking light, uh, which is, you know, makes me think of Lucy, especially in this episode when she was talking to, to, when she was transferring Cole to Truman, she mentioned the blinking light. And then the next scene is Andy leading Lucy down a, a hallway into an opening. Now, Lucy has this kind of confused expression and this uh, more disorientation and uh, is looking around. And then we cut back to Naido again, whispering to Andy, like maybe, you know, what she's telling him and the shots that, 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 um, that follow, especially the, the first time we see Naido um, in the set of clues, we see Mr. C and Cooper. And now we see her again. And what follows after the whispering of Andy is our final shot of the familiar electrical pole number six that we originally saw um, at the Fat, Fat Trot trailer park in Firewalk With Me. But what we also saw in Twin Peaks in part six, when um, Harry Dean Stanton, the Carl Rod, um, came to the aid of the uh, the woman whose little boy was run over by little Dickie Horn, we got our first shot of that electrical pole. And that's the final shot. And Lynch does three quick cuts. And I think they get closer each time. And I think the final one is in color because this whole scene has been in black and white. And then the images end. And... Andy, I think, looks down and he's still holding this object and the smoke actually returns to this little pipe-like um, like, uh, uh, piece at the top of the object. And then, poof, he's gone. And I just love the giant's reaction. The giant's face in this whole thing is just a total like kind of amusement that, you know, um, Andy there probably prophesized, but just a fantastic scene. Now, Immediately after, we go back to Jackrabbit's Palace, and our characters of Bobby, Truman, and Hawk are at Jackrabbit's Palace, not at the location where, they're, where they found Naido. But when we see them, it's not them. It's like they're kind of uh, 
ghostly images like there's several of them walking around kind of like in a circle and they slowly start to come to and merge with our characters now this could mean any number of things but whether we're talking about multiple identities or possible like multiple timelines which i'll get into not in this podcast but but later but when they actually you know come to they can't remember what just transpired and maybe how they got back to Jackrabbit's palace because they know that they walked to the location where Major Briggs indicated. But then Andy shows up and he's carrying Aido and he's covered her with her jet with his jacket, and he's stoic, and he knows what needs to be done, and he tells them that this woman is very important and they need to protect her, and uh, because there are people trying to kill her. So, what a great, great, great scene! First of all, Andy. Being trans, you know, like, you know, transpose or transpose, excuse me, but being kind of sucked into the vortex and appearing in the giants, you know, slash fireman's domain and being the person that, you know, was given all of these clues and being so prominent now in, in the, the final act of this, you know, um, of this story. Fantastic. And just the imagery, the mood. Everything, the return of Naido, uh, the sycamore tree—just a great, great, a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting pieces to to think about. But a fantastic scene. We next move on to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's, Depart- uh, Sheriff's Department and in the jail cell, where Lucy and Andy have taken Naido. Lucy's given her a robe, and when they leave, it's just Naido, Chad, and you know the Twin Peaks equivalent of maybe Otis the Drunk from. Uh, uh, the Andy Griffith show, like, you know, Mary, Mary, Mayberry. And uh, Naido is is confused. She can't see. She probably doesn't know where she is. And she starts making these these sounds, which sound like monkey sounds. And when I hear when I heard that, I thought of Fire Walk With Me. Yet again, the end, when the monkey appeared and whispered, Judy. So there very well might be a connection between Naido, Judy, and the monkey. Now, we haven't got a monkey. We got some sounds. Now, remember Ray, when he was watching the woodsman revive Mr. C in part nine, or in part eight, excuse me, if you sped up the the the, the slow soundtrack that was going on, it was actually, he was making monkey sounds, which is very, very interesting. But um, so what happens is after Andy and Lucy leave and the three of them are left, this other person, this drunk, which has, you know, he has, you know, uh, some... You know, facial, you know, bleeding, you know, bleeding from the face. And he's mimicking everything Chad's saying, like mocking Chad, mimicking Chad. But it's also a call to, you know, Dougie, uh, obviously being a mimicker himself. I don't think there's any connection to that, but it just adds to the, you know, uneasiness of the scene because Naido is trapped in like a cell, like a bird, like, you know, maybe like a Waldo, birdie, birdie, birdie from the original series. And Chad is just pissed off that he's had to, you know, deal with, you know, this situation. But it was a very, you know, uh, disorienting scene. Um, And it went on for, you know, much longer than I thought. But um, that scene wraps up. And I believe we next go to the Great Northern Hotel. And what we find at the Great Northern Hotel is... Um, two people, security guards, played by James Hurley and Freddie. Now, Freddie was James's friend that we saw in part two briefly who was wearing this mysterious green glove. Well, it's apparently James's birthday, and after their shift is over, they're going to go to the roadhouse. But before they do, 
James wants to know the story behind the green glove. Now, when we first see Freddy and James, um, they're eating, I presume, walnuts. And Freddy is actually cracking the nuts with his hand. And he's doing it so powerfully that everything is just being crushed. So James has to use the nutcracker. So James wants to know the story behind the glove. And what transpires is another fascinating tale. I thought we were going to maybe get like this prolonged scene of just, you know, just, uh, I wouldn't say nonsense, but uh, uh, just something that wasn't really, you know, related to anything uh, plot-wise. Because who is this character? We saw him briefly in part two, and here we are, just two guys sitting, you know, on the edge of this, you know, kind of dock talking. But what 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 transpires is just utterly fascinating. First of all, we find out that Freddie can't take the glove off. Glo- excuse me, take the glove off. Apparently, um, a doctor tried to do so at some point, and his hand started to bleed. So it's a part of his, you know, it's a part of his, uh, you know, his, his anatomy. It's like part of his, you know, it's organic. And it makes me think of a Cronenberg, like a Cronenbergian touch. But um, I digress. He tells a story, basically, is that six months ago, when he was living in London, he was out with his mates at a pub. And coming home, he went to take a shortcut through an alley. And he saw these boxes, like, stacked up or something. And I think he wanted, he, he leaped. And when he leaped, something happened and he was taken into the air and into a vortex of some sort. At least that's what he described. And he was floating. And what's very similar to what we just saw with uh, the gang near Jack Rabbit's palace and, and what we saw at the zone. And what he says is, is that he found himself in some place with a person who he said called himself the fireman. Now this fireman, who we know to be the giant, told him that he was supposed to go to a hardware store near his flat and buy this one package that had one right green glove. And he does so. And there's a, a little bit of a story, which I won't get into, with him actually trying to get the glove. Um, but I think there was a reference to uh, him like you know, hitting the, the proprietor of the shop in, 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 in the testicles. And I think he said the word Gregory as a euphemism for, for either you know, uh, uh, testicles or, or penis or whatever, which I thought was kind of interesting. Never heard of Gregory. But, um, so he tells this story. And basically what trans- transpires is that, that the, the fireman tells Freddy that he is to put on this glove and it's going to make his hand very strong like a pile driver. And what he's eventually supposed to do is find himself in Twin Peaks, Washington, United States of America, um, and his destiny will be fulfilled. And when he asks him, why him? The fireman responds, why not you? So James listens to the story, and I, I think is you know I, I'm sure he, James is a pure heart as well, and I think he believes them. But it's a very hard story to believe. But for the audience, for us to get this scene at this particular moment and with this particular character and the information that is given to us, is, it's almost overwhelming because of what just of what we just saw. But this character, Freddie, is going to play an integral role, I think, in um, the events that it will lead to our climax, um, this green glove, um, which, you know, he possesses this, this, this very strength. The giant, you know, saw this and chose him to be, you know, the messenger. And uh, it's, just, it's just very fascinating. So as the scene continues, um, <clears throat> excuse me, James has to go check the furnace while Freddie, I believe, goes to check on a delivery. Now, when Ch- James goes to check on the furnace, we hear the mysterious hum, the return of the hum. He seems to be following it through this very dark and foreboding furnace room. And it made me think of the, the, uh, the Twin Peaks pilot European ending uh, where uh, we saw Mike 
the one-armed man telling a story about um, Bob and him, and which was basically recycled in the third episode or the second episode, Cooper's Dream of the original series, but that was in a boiler room in a hospital, but it had that same like feeling and quality. Well, he's, I don't know if it's the hum is leading him or what he's supposed to find, but he seems to be, you know, like, you know, following something and he comes to this door and leave it to Lynch to just be able to create such an ominous mood just from a closed door. But that's just what he did. But we didn't find out what was behind that door because we now cut to a new scene. And this, for me, is the most terrifying scene. And it very well may be the most terrifying scene in the whole series. Um, because Sarah Palmer appears. We don't see her get out of a car. She just appears. And she's walking towards, I believe it's Elks Club, Elks Point, number nine bar. She's smoking a cigarette. She's taking her time. Now, I had always thought that she would get out of her house. And that something would compel her to get out of the house. And it would be related to, you know, the events that are, you know, unfolding and, and converging on Twin Peaks and might be related to Cooper or Laura. Um, but this seems to be just her going to maybe her establishment, her, you know, place where she drinks, maybe to get out of the house. And she finds herself in this bar. She goes to the bar. She orders a Bloody Mary. And there's a character at the end of the bar. Um, and uh, just a quick aside with all these Fire Walk With Me references, I believe this guy, this actor who had... The, the, the character had a shirt that said truck you on it. I think he was in the missing pieces. I think he played the part of the truck driver that Laura met um, to exchange um, sex for drugs. Um, so yet another call back to fire walk with me. But Sarah's at the bar and she doesn't want to be bothered. She wants to smoke her cigarette and she wants to drink her Bloody Mary and she does not want to be bothered. Well, this guy uh, comes on to her and when he doesn't get the response that he wants... He just goes full evil and starts calling her just horrible, horrible names. Sarah seems to be, uh, you know, taking it in stride. What happens is, is that after the guy calls her, I think, a bull dyke lesbian and then says something about maybe eating out another woman, that Sarah slowly turns to him and she says, I'll eat you. And how she says that, I mean, I, I would really, I, the, the tingles and I, I, the line reading and her expression. Now, when we saw her in part 12, we know there was something going on with her, but I could never imagine that, that she was maybe host to some kind of evil. I mean, we know that she's a seer. She's one of the gifted people, but there's something more ominous going on with Sarah because what we find right out is this guy won't take no for an answer. And he says one final insult to her. And Sarah pulls off her face, just like Laura did in part two. But as opposed to Laura, who had this glowing white light within her, Sarah has this this darkness. And what I saw was this white hand, and it looked like with the the, the ring finger, the spiritual mound, you know, where the owl cave ring would go. It was black, and it looked elongated. And then that kind of disappeared, and we saw this just smile with black lips. It looked very, very strikingly similar to, you guessed it, Fire Walk With Me, Missing Pieces. There's one little shot in the convenience store scene, the extended convenience store scene, where Lynch chose to do this close-up of just Bob's mouth, and it looked just like that. Also similar to The Jumping Man, but it was pure evil within 
Sarah Palmer and she puts her face back on and this guy's like, what the hell did I just see? And then straight out of some like late 90s like horror movie, she just kind of lean, lunges forward and just takes a huge chunk out of his throat and he collapses to the ground, dying. And then Sarah comes to, starts to cover her tracks and screams and the bartender comes over and Sarah plays it off, doesn't, you know, doesn't know how that happened. But the bartender even suspects there's something going on with Sarah and he doesn't want to get too close to her and he backs off. But, I mean, what... That scene was completely unexpected with Sarah Palmer. Now, a couple of questions. Is that the glass box monster, the experiment within Sarah? We know it escaped the glass box. Where did it go? Is it Bob within her? I don't think it's Bob within her. Um, There's just so many questions. I was originally thinking that the house was affecting Sarah. You know, maybe Laura's painting which we presume to be a portal, at least I presume to be a portal, was affecting her. She was on that loop. There was that electrical, you know, call to that crackle in her in her house. But she is possessed by something. I mean, she is really the complete antithesis of what Laura represents. And the fact that she's her mother is just purely mind-blowing. I mean, so tragic for the Palmer family. I thought at least Sarah, I knew that there was going to be trouble for her, but I thought there was going to be some kind of redemption. But there's so much to really chew on with this scene, with her and what it all means. And if she might represent that symbol that's on Mr. C's playing card and whatever is in that house, that, you know, Sarah, that house, we knew it was key, but it might be even more to that. I mean, it might be the center of everything. Um, Grace Zabriskie, always been a fantastic actress, but I mean, I didn't think there could be anything as chilling as Bob in the original series. But the the two scenes, the one scene in part 12 with her at the door with Hawk and this scene, I you know, I don't want to, you know, speak, you know, with, with hyperbole, but, you know, pretty damn close. I mean, really just like I said, so unexpected and, and poor Sarah Palmer. And it's just for me, tragic. We only have four more hours to go is how the hell is everything going to be wrapped up? So we get one final scene at the roadhouse. And of course, immediately my, my head just lowers. Oh no. Two more characters, two women going to talk about, you know, characters that don't have any meaning relation to anything, but no, Lynch threw a curveball. Now, one of the actresses, I think it's Sophie and what's the other girl's name? Megan? Now, I think I, I could be wrong about this, but I'm going to say Sophie is is Emily Stoffel, the one on the right who is asking all these questions, which is Lynch's wife. And the other one is Megan. And basically, their conversation is about characters that were referenced in Audrey's conversation with Charlie, namely Billy. Now, Megan was in her house, in her kitchen with her mom. And she says this twice, I think. She goes, I think it was my uncle. Now, as the story is unfolding, I'm trying to put everything together and I'm thinking of Audrey, but when this uncle got mentioned for the second time and the kitchen and might being related to dinner, I thought of part 11 when the gunshots rang out and uh, at the double R and Bobby went to investigate and saw, you know, the family, you know, the, the kid with his parents and uh, freaking out. 
and then the woman behind honking the horn. Now, we didn't get much exp- or much details on where the, that family was going, but I think but the woman in the car with the sick girl, the zombie sick girl, she was saying how they were supposed to, they were connected to the people ahead of them and they were supposed to meet people for dinner. And that woman also mentioned the uncle. She hasn't seen him in a long time. So that, this story that Megan is telling could very well be connected to the events outside of the double R and those particular characters. And um, even more so, it's confirmed that Megan's mother is Tina and she's the one who's fucking Billy who Audrey is apparently fucking. So this is just for me, I mean, another scene where, I mean, I, you can't, it's impossible to grasp what's going on and connect these dots on this first viewing. I mean, we can make, you know, like, you know, uh, leaps and, you know, uh, certain connections. But for me, it even gives greater weight to the Audrey dilemma, which I thought was, um, in the preceding episode was expanding into more interesting places as opposed to the first scene, which I, I just felt went on too long and I, there was no context, no frame of reference for anything. But here it is, we're getting clues. And the fact that this story is being told at the roadhouse and Audrey was wanting to go to the roadhouse. I mean, I'm going to really wrap my head around this and, and confer with Murphy and we will have our theories on this on Wednesday night. But the actual episode ends with a musical act, and uh, I could care less for that. I, I, I'm sorry, I just don't. I'd like some of them, but I just, I don't. I would rather have someone. I would have rather had the credits rolled over these two women, maybe just like pausing after the revelation that it's Tina's mother, you know, or have someone else sweeping, or, you know, have, well, you know, let's, let's see what that MC, that cool MC is doing, you know, in the back room, you know, um, so anything, but okay. So the episode ends proper, and uh, I'm going to give you my final thoughts. Basically, um, we only have four hours to go. I thought that, well, I excuse me, I never thought that the structure of this show would be broken up into conventional third acts like six, six, and six, um, just because of the way the project was produced with um, Lynch knowing that. Uh, he was going to film his script, but not knowing exactly how long it was going to be and exactly how he's going to cut it up. But this episode for me really feels like the very beginning of the final act. And I think from this point forward with the, the, the final four hours that um, obviously the momentum is going to build and we're not going to have very many scenes that are going to kind of ease back, you know, um, you know, the more character develop, more of the vignettes that we've got. I think we're going to slowly narrow in to our main focus, which is the FBI, the Twin Peaks, the, their investigation, um, and what was uncovered, you know, you know, tonight at Jackrabbit's Palace, and uh, and the events of Dougie and, and, and Vegas. And all of these are interconnected. It's all like incestuous, like, you know, Diane, Vegas, Janie E., Mr. C., Cooper, now Sarah, Glass Box. I mean, there could, all of these things are converging onto Twin Peaks. And the fact that we didn't get a Mr. C or a Cooper, like a proper scene of them in this episode, just like in part 12, I believe, um, is shocking because of what he means to the narrative. But it's also a testament to Lynch's 
Lynch and Frost's their their storytelling to have such a compelling episode without their you know protagonist and antagonist. But I have a feeling that this will be the last time we don't see either one of them in in a proper scene. So um, I want to thank you all uh, for indulging me. I, I hope it wasn't uh, uh, just uh, I want to say boring, uh, but. Uh, just too much of Tom, because I think too much of Tom is, is never a good thing. It's a good balance that Murphy and I have. I'm more of the savant, and I go down rabbit holes, and Murphy is, you know, the, the you know, entertainer, who also is, you know, very, you know, steeped in Twin Peaks lore and has great theories himself, but we have a great balance, and I hope it's not too much of Tom, and uh, and I appreciate you, you all indulging, but please know that we will have a proper episode in a few days, probably on Wednesday night. And we will go diving deep into part 14. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, email us on chop, uh, choppingwoodinside uh, at gmail.com. Um, we're also on iTunes and SoundCloud. Um, also, just want to shout out again to uh, several of our, our, our followers, our friends on, on, on Twitter. Um, we've been having a great discussion almost daily um, and these are fantastic detectives and uh, Caitlin and Frank and Dougie I want to thank you um, for your support of our podcast and your friendship and uh, I continue to discuss part 14 and, and, and episodes and beyond and, and hopefully with more of you so until then I appreciate everything and uh, we'll talk to you soon